Digital Drift, episode 26, recorded Saturday 19th of July 2014, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. We're talking about huge potential for millions of people. Our therapy enables the brain to repair itself. We call it the cure. I want you to start testing on chimps ASAP. We test one subject. I want to make sure it's stable. I designed the 112 for repair. But Caesar's gone way beyond that. You mean increased intelligence? The skills that far exceed that of a human counterpart. This is wrong, Will. It works. And what about Caesar? Where does he fit in? That ship's company property. He hasn't spent any time with other chimps. They're not people, you know. You're trying to control things that are not meant to be controlled. They are contaminated. Put those apes down. You have no idea what you're dealing with. Ten years after the Tim Burton reimagining managed to repulse fans of the Apes series and stupefy newcomers of the interim generations, 20th Century Fox had a go at a combination series reboot stroke alternate prequel to the original Planet of the Apes and loose remake of the third movie, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. On paper, that sounds like a nightmare, which should, by all rights, have alienated virtually everyone, newcomer or old hand. In execution, it surprised all viewers with an understated, subtle and exceptionally well-paced, well-written, well-directed science fiction drama gathering to a series of thrilling ape action sequences for the first time in the series. Wisely, the prosthetics were dropped in favour of convincing us we were seeing true, real-life apes rendered in performance capture with master craftsman Andy Serkis, already having played the most famous gorilla in the world, now taking the lead for the most famous chimpanzee, if we don't count bubbles. It begins with an almost fairy tale scenario with the chimp who would be bright eyes being snatched away from the balance of nature in a forest that would eventually become Caesar's yearned for goal. So right out of the gate, you've got immediate parallels with uh, the point in Planet of the Apes, the, the Heston one we'll call it where the humans start getting snatched up by, by the apes. It's the oppressors um, just cruelly coming in and snatching up the oppressed. Yeah, and all the, the nets and the um, the general lack of communication between pursuer and pursued reinforces that. But it, it straight away seems much more uh, realistic. There's much more of a, a genuine threat there. Hmm. Oh, there's also inadvertent uh, parallels with the, uh, the Burton one, where they're snatching up humans in that. Uh, again, that was in a forest, and, and that's uh, very evocative there. Um, 
but at, at this point, you're asked to, to side with the apes for the first time for, for most viewers, unless they've seen um, uh, some of the later uh, Planet of the Apes films from the, the original Quintology. If you've only seen the Burton one, or indeed only seen the Burton one and the original, you don't know you're supposed to side with the apes. In fact, the if you remember the trailers for this one, made Caesar look really shifty. And you're like, oh, it was the ape with the shifty eyes. And there's that point where it sort of pans back and he's standing in front of the bed and it's like, what if an ape was watching you in your sleep? Which kind of may have been why it took everyone by surprise because it was it was painting the chimps as, and uh, the, the apes in general as being these kind of malevolent creatures. And when you, you, you get down to it, they're really relatable. More so than some of the humans. Hmm, I'll say certainly at this juncture I mean the fact that you've got the primitive apes in the wild as your starting point it gives it much more of a grounding in our world there was actually a deleted moment here where uh, after Bright Eyes is snatched away uh, one of the pursuing apes uh, coming after her in the uh, when she's locked in the box gets shot but I think that uh, took the emphasis off Bright Eyes capture and more on the cruelty of the humans and the loss of that ape. So it's almost like Bright Eyes got away lucky. And of course, for folks who haven't seen the original Heston version, Bright Eyes is the name that Taylor uh, Heston is given in that. Although this chimpanzee does seem an awful lot smarter than he did, as we joked in the original podcast. Indeed. And uh, the bit where she's doing the puzzle here, and uh, it's actually uh, kind of referenced in uh, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, uh, comes down to something to do with uh, ape flash memory retention. Uh, I'm not entirely sure whether that directly correlates with the sort of stacking puzzle, but uh, there's this bit on one of the extras uh, on an LED screen, a whole bunch of numbers from 1 to 10 flash in different various points on a panel, but they only flash up for like half a second and a human asked to remember exactly where one was, then two, then three, then four, can only get up to about four and then they just go, no, even the smartest human on the planet can't memorize that many numbers in that sequence that quickly. For some reason, chimps have an ability to take an immediate picture of what they're seeing just in that context seemingly and in this case press all the buttons in exactly the right order. And uh, there's quite a lot of uh, uh, keypad type stuff that actually happens in the film, which actually turns out to be they, they don't emphasize it, but it just seems like Caesar's looking at things. But uh, but that's actually how he's able to memorize certain security codes. It may well be because, um, and I'm speculating wildly here, but the fact that they don't ascribe any particular. Um, meaning to the numbers in that context if a human is trying to remember numbers they're trying to memorize what the numbers mean if you look you know the thing where you do the the memory test with the tray of objects yeah it's a lot easier to commit 10 objects to memory than it is to commit 10 numbers to memory because you're not trying to give them any weight or any meaning you just literally it's a, a picture and in fact, the abstraction of those objects uh, is much easier to remember as opposed to the, the, the numbers one through ten we see every day on a daily basis in all kinds of jumbles. And there's no it's, – it's much harder to remember them in a different order. Exactly. A, a ten to us is ten. There's a lot of, of connotation to it. To a chimp, it's a line in a circle. Yeah. 
Although apparently they can organize Roman numerals one to ten. They they understand the way that works as well. Once they've been trained, it's a it, it would appear to be easier than uh, ordering numbers one through ten. All right, interesting. Yeah. Um, I think they did make um, a change to Bright Eyes the the way her eyes actually look, didn't they? When she's first captured. Um, her the the whites of her eyes are completely invisible. That mm-hmm. she has these big, very brown puppy dog type yeah. um, eyes, very animalistic, uh, albeit very. Or well, they they seem not compassionate exactly because she hasn't really expressed any emotion at this point. But you you feel sympathy for her. Yeah. Um, but when she's in the cage and she's doing the test the whites of her eyes are much clearer and her expression seems to be much more comprehending she really does not look happy about her situation but she does accept the reward Mm. that's offered Uh, the alz 112 serum uh this is such a geeky reference they mentioned it in uh, again some of the special features 112 is the original running time in the American theatrical cut of Planet of the Apes. So the 113 would be the special director's cut with one extra minute of uh, Charlton Heston. And also I noticed while I was watching this, this is the premise of Deep Blue Sea, sort of. If any of you folks have seen that, Saffron Burroughs is a mad scientist with altruistic reasons whose um, whose father uh, began to lose his mind and was compelled to um, make sharks super intelligent so that she could cure Alzheimer's. And you know, bad things happened as a result. But obviously this is just the really, really, really good version of Deep Blue Sea. Although it would have been very interesting to see a shark trying to climb a redwood. It would. Although, yeah. it, it's like reference quality, best CGI versus worst CGI as well. Yes, there is that. Some of this is like sci-fi channel level stuff of uh, Deep Blue Sea. Yeah. There is um, – it is still a little bit um, medical research bad kind of tone to it. Although, although there's obviously the weight of what they're trying to achieve behind it, the – attitude of the organization that's behind will's research does not that there's never any implication that they have the same altruistic motives that he does it's profit 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 all the way summed um, up by jacobs who's like all we care about is money is money yeah <laughs> he's like a south park character all they he care about is their precious money yeah um but there was one comment that really concerned me a little bit at this point when um he uh, will mentions in the notes of bright eyes achievement <laughs> that she has experienced full cognitive recovery now that kind of suggests that they've subjected their chimps to brain damage so that they've got something to fix yeah they they snuck that one under the wire but ultimately it, it would make sense to uh to basically simulate uh, Alzheimer's within the chimps to see if it would actually have an effect. Indeed. But that kind of adds even more weight to her becoming extremely protective when she has her baby because if, you know, terrible things have been done to her, then it stands to reason that she would be concerned about them visiting the same things on her child. Yeah. It could simply be a combination of DNA and, and the strain of the actual um, uh, drug, but uh, the, the point being that Caesar himself is unaffected by any kind of 
brain damage and absolutely thrives on this. Also, he's the first chimp that has a long time of learning in the context of a human being as well, notably, mm, uh, yeah. to really harness this. Uh, also, um, the the lab isn't just uh, Jacob's. Uh, uh, Franklin does have much more of a bond with the animals. He's presented as a bit on the dumb side, but he is at least compassionate about them, and, and he seems to be mostly there are moments that don't seem to fit with his general attitude towards the animals but mostly he is uh, apparently there to make sure that they're not mistreated and that they are uh, handled relatively well in the context of of what they're there for which is mm. medicine testing this film absolutely whips by but it's so full of detail most of it just quietly hidden there for you to find out and you either you either catch it uh and and great or you just go straight past you and it just seems like it's part of the texture of the film that's the some of the best kind of filmmaking for me because uh, it allows us to deconstruct the hell out of it but uh it also it generally makes for kind of a nourishing experience for people when they're watching it because they're like oh this seems like there's a lot of stuff going on and yet i'm following it all well, they do seem to go for that uh, that visual style of storytelling um, a lot in this, which is something that we commented on during the X-Men films as, as being – I think this is something that has only really had the opportunity to flourish since the advent of uh, home cinema mm. because it's now – almost expected that when you make a film it will be with the intention that people watch it again and again and again yeah, and again yeah. and will have the time and the patience to absorb all the little bits of background information that you've put in made by people who themselves have been watching movies again and again and again because back in yes. those days you went to see it in the cinema and then when it was on tv this like back in i said those days 68 unless you were rich enough to have a reel-to-reel cinema projector in your home that that was pretty much it, and this is you know pre VHS. Yeah. So. so if there was if there's something that's sort of not obvious and people might not get it, then if it's really significant to the process of your film, then you need to have somebody say it. Yeah, which unfortunately meant a lot of people doing a lot of exposition back in those days. Yeah. But that's not to say there isn't a fuck ton of movies released these days, such as G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, where the first third is all exposition. Indeed. And that's not to say that any film made prior to 1980 couldn't be done extremely subtly with loads of detail. It's mm -hmm. just that um, there have been more detailed films made since 1980. Well, as you say, we've had more practice at it now. As an audience, there are many people who are, well, like Caesar and his being exposed to a, a human child's learning processes. We've been exposed to films which require us to look again and again and again and pick up more detail um, as it goes on. I mean, for a start, that whole side of uh, why the development of the ALZ 112 is so important to Will is done almost all visually. Nobody, uh, certainly early on, ever says anything about Charles... Um, uh, the the deterioration of his dementia mm. or or anything like that. It's all in what you see. The yeah. images on the walls. The the first time you uh, see Charles, uh, you there's a, a, a certificate on the wall saying "Beloved Music Teacher," and he is mangling Claire de Lune. So 
you're, what you're hearing has dissonance with what you're seeing and you either pick up on that or just the fact that he's acting strangely. Uh, if you're, if you're a kid, you can work out from that that things just aren't right. The fact that he then immediately speaks to, uh, Will as though he's a teenage boy. Uh, just little things that tell you things aren't quite right here. And I'm impressed as hell at both James Franco and John Lithgow, uh, because the last thing that I've seen uh, with James Franco in it, uh, aside from possibly Harry Osborn in the Spider-Man trilogy, was Pineapple Express, where he played a loathsome stoner. And uh, John Lithgow, the last thing I'd seen of huge significance was his turn in Dexter, uh, which was absolutely chilling. And for me to really care about them within moments speaks volumes of their abilities. And especially since they're acting up against Andy Serkis, who uh, turns in a career-high performance. And I mean that taking into account Gollum, taking into account Kong. This is absolutely wonderful performing. And the fact that he didn't get nominated for an Oscar is further proof of the absolute travesty that that whole scenario entails. That will not happen until the Academy has worked out how they allocate... um, uh, performance nominations for uh, uh, performance capture. It, I, th- I believe it will take them a long time to get past this idea that the technology is doing more than the actor is. Uh, best actor that year was uh, Jean Dujardin from The Artist, film celebrating Hollywood's golden age. This is how backward-ass the Academy are. He gave an amazing performance despite being in black and white. Give that man an Oscar. <laughs> And not being able to talk. That's like all kinds of disabilities. Will's house is actually uh, a series of sets. It's on three levels. So the uh, the whole sequence where Caesar's uh, a three-year-old chimp swinging through the house, giving himself a cookie, uh, going through all three levels and swinging up uh, and into the uh, to, to to look out the window uh, is a masterful piece of uh, filmmaking where you don't even really know you're watching effects it just looks like a particularly uh, agile chimp and the director Rupert Wyatt uh, pointed out that um it's the imperfections that make that perfect it's the little wobbles the little uh, bits that that seem um to come from human performance which is why performance capture is, is so key. Uh, a, a keyframe animator most of the time will go for perfection. This works when you're doing robots, but for organic uh, creatures, very, very rarely will they not be improved by having a, some human who has trained themselves in uh, motion capture or uh, um, animal performance in some way uh, being behind this- them. You need the stumbles. You need the looking the wrong way first and then the yeah. right way. There's just so much throughout this whole film, just watching Circus the whole way through. And not just him. There's various other actors behind the various other uh, primates uh, at work here who, you know, who turn in absolutely stellar performances that would be massively noteworthy were you not focusing on Circus all the time. The guy who uh, plays um, Rocket, for example, uh, also played... Um, uh, Bright Eyes. Uh, his name's Terry Notary. He's that guy from The Hobbit, uh, the one who does all the um, the motion coaching for that. He's a relative, uh, I'd say he's a relative newcomer to the scene. He was actually in the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes as a stunt double for Thade when Ray Park wasn't doing the leaping around. Um, but uh, yeah, Terry Notary is absolutely a guy to watch. He's uh, he, basically he taught all the other goblins how to move, and he was he's a, a fixture at Weta, and uh, I believe he and Rocket are in uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. 
Excellent. I think what you said about not really noticing the uh, the others in comparison to um, what Circus is doing as Caesar, in a way, I think that actually speaks to how real their performances are. Yeah. It, it's, it's They're all not trying to hit don't... that same beat of real. Absolutely. But it, it's not that you don't notice them exactly. It's just that they're so good that they they fit as background. Yeah. You you don't nothing looks out of place. Nothing looks um like it shouldn't. And uh as Caesar is shown to be uh, improving, uh you've got the um contrast of Charles clearly getting worse and uh, and actually fighting with his uh, nurse and and that uh, there's that horrible horrible moment where um he's just left sort of muttering to himself it's no way to live and it's just phenomenal understated performance like you know theater level you know from a, a mature actor who you know we've seen as lord farquad we've seen, he was in cliffhanger um third rock from the sun there's the, the, the range of this guy but it's not the sort of thing you expect to see in a summer blockbuster and i think that's kind of one of the keys to why this surprised the hell out of everyone it's not the sort of thing you'd expect to see in a summer blockbuster at all and it would appear at the moment that Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is not smashing Transformers uh, Age of Extinction, but it's certainly kind of edging it out. Well, I mean, I think people do forget that incredibly high quality, well-trained, astoundingly professional and talented actors also have to eat. Um, the Oscar worthy were in quotation marks performances and, and roles do not come on. Uh, come along every day yeah. and uh, sometimes they're going to take something that you wouldn't necessarily think of them doing for fun or for profit <laughs> and um, and add something to that film that it wouldn't otherwise have had and frankly if, such as Christopher Eccleston in G.I. Joe yeah <laughs> I spent a lot of that film just going what is he doing in this movie? I think he just might have liked G.I. Joe when he was younger. No, no, no. Not just about Eccleston, though. Like, about so many of the <laughs> actors in that film. What are they doing in this movie? But then you see the summer blockbusters where they just went, we can't be asked to spend any money on talent. Let's just grab the nearest models and idiots and stick them in it. <laughs> the nearest models and idiots. <laughs> but, it, no, it is an ensemble piece, though. I could just say, oh, it's all circus. But it requires... Action and reaction. It requires, uh, when, um, Lithgow goes to pieces to then cut to James Franco, absolutely heartbroken and just watching his father go to pieces and knowing he could do something about it. And that being what spurs him on, that being what gets him to make the, uh, the 113. Uh, there's a lot of the pacing, as I mentioned before, is incredibly taut in this film. There's a lot of this happened, and then as a result, this happened, and as a result, this happened. There's almost no fat. And people have complained that the uh, the ape stuff is way better than the human stuff. Well, that's because the ape stuff is incredible. The human stuff is also very good, but it's unfortunately outshadowed by stuff which is... You just don't normally see this. There are some moments, though, particularly from James Franco, that... that just struck me that you don't normally see hmm. in films of this nature. The, uh, early on in the film, when he first brings Caesar home, um, I, I, in fact, I think it's the first night, yeah. um, the baby chimp has a cold. Yeah. And although there's not really been any exploration of any emotional connection between them yet, the 
the the exhausted way that he stumbles into the bathroom and turns all the taps on so that the room will fill with steam and, mm. and clear the, the baby's head out um, and just kind of sits there. I, that, that was you. I've seen that. That was you. <laughs> you know, it, it just seemed so real. In a lesser film, that would have been a comedy bit that then leads to a touching moment. In this, it's characterization and it's a bonding moment. Mm, absolutely. They don't bother with it, just the funny, funny. There's funny bits. It's actually a really kind of uh, a fun film. Um, and you don't realize it until you like you see it the second time and you know how it ends, that you're just sort of like caught up in it. And, and the more you watch it, the more attached you get to the characters and, and you care about the little things. At least I do. So, you know, when Caesar ventures out to go after the bike even though you know it's not going to turn out too bad, you've got this sort of the tension in your gut where you don't want anything bad to happen to him. And you understand the context of, uh, of what an extraordinary scenario it is, finding a chimp in your garage paying attention to your bike. And just, I kind of do feel sorry for this neighbor. I mean, he's an aggressive prick. But it's it's an unusual scenario he's shoved into, and he obviously ending up as patient zero. Punishment doesn't exactly fit the crime. But again, they paint him as such an asshole that it's it, you, there's a, a kind of a schadenfreude to it. But again, with this, this wonderful performance from Circus after Caesar gets injured on some shears when he's uh, being attacked at this point, and he, he, he's like pawing at his, uh, his, his, the cut on his leg and going, ah, 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 uh, almost like he's never really been that badly hurt before, and he, he's trying to understand it. But, uh, it's, I think it's just the, the fact that it's, it's not so much the injury as the, the being completely freaked out by being uh, that having that much aggression uh, directed towards him, which then sets you up for what he's going to uh, end up entering into when he meets all the other chimps. Mm. Well, put it into context. Can you imagine how a child would feel if they suddenly had that directed at them? Age three. Yeah. I mean, I think his his mental capacity at that point is a little older in terms mm. of not necessarily context comprehension, but in terms of... Um, well, he's playing chess at that point, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The average three-year-old is unlikely to be so. Um, well, he's, he's actually he's of age when he gets to eight. So, I mean, that's, yeah. that's a, a chimp generation is eight years. So uh, um, he's... He, I guess he's a teenager at that stage, like I a young so, teenager. Yeah. So be, I guess if you double it. Yeah. So that would make him about six. So that would make him <laughs> Lyra's age. Imagine if Lyra walked out into the garden and the neighbour threatened her with a baseball bat. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, I did not expect this at all, but Lyra loves this movie. She really does. She named, she has a little cuddly chimp that she named Caesar that night when she first saw it. She re, I, I, I thought she'd be freaked out by it. I thought she'd be bored by all the human stuff and, um, that she'd find the, uh, the apes too aggressive, but she was totally with it. She has, uh, as with a lot of children, an overdeveloped sense of justice. So she, when she sees anyone being uh, oppressed, she's totally with it and she wants them to rise up and cast off their oppressors. She doesn't want conflict. She wants peace, but she doesn't want anyone being abused or exploited. And 
it I did not expect that this film could really appeal to little kids. So if you folks out there are wondering whether or not this will be suitable for your kids, maybe consider showing it to them and let us know how they get on with it because we're we're really interested to know if this becomes like a a major kid thing because I can tell you right now the original Heston one not so interesting. Not so much. Yeah. The uh, I mean, the Tim Burton one boring. <laughs> I mean, obviously, different children would respond um, in in very different ways to violent scenes, and and yeah, yeah. there's a, there's a lot of emotional hits in there that there's blood and injury and yeah, uh, and all yeah. Kinds so of trauma. you know, different parents will know what their children are likely yeah, to be course. able to. Um, well, uh, to yeah, that's a given. Obviously, that's a given. We can't just. <laughs> <laughs> we can't just say just sit your kids down with this obviously watch it first and, and then make your assessments but like i said we're, we're interested to see what the uh the kind of optimum age for really getting with this film is as well um so when they're at the zoo to uh, get uh, caesar fixed they meet uh, caroline played by freda pinto who uh, was in slumdog millionaire and is absolutely beautiful and convincing as a doctor she has that kind of offhand way of discussing the stitches that I'm like, wow, she, did she, is she actually a doctor? Oh no, no, she's the one from Slumdog. One of the only things I do have to ask about her, and this was mentioned on the uh, commentary, so it, it's, it's not just me. Um, Rupert Wyatt mentioned it. How come she waits five years to ask how Caesar is the way he is? She doesn't ask until after the incident with the, the dog in the woods. I had that in my notes. He, he, when he shows her around the room, the computer room with all the, the signs on the, the wall and the pins and the charts and Did the, he open like an airlock door that she's never been in? I was going to say five years and she's never seen that part of his house before. Wouldn't you ask questions? Wouldn't you start thinking heads in cupboards at that point? Basically, it's time compression. She would have asked that at some point along the way, but it needs to be asked at the point when Caesar is really asking questions about himself. And unfortunately, those two moments clash. Yeah, I, I did. Caroline's character, unfortunately, is a lot smaller yeah. than the other main characters. And I completely understand why, but she is basically there to add not even really an exposition point, but a certain perspective. She's kind of almost like Will's inner monologue. Mm. Most of what she says are things that he fears yeah. or things that he's thinking about or things that he's trying very hard not to think about. And she doesn't really say or do much that isn't in that vein. You don't really see her, apart from in that first scene where she is doing her vet shtick, you don't really also see that her... After that, they joined just, at the hip. Yeah. Well, indeed. But you don't, don't really just see her doing shit or, you know, developing her as a character in and of her herself yeah. uh, she's also there to stop him getting to victor frankenstein yes there's a lot of that you know the the uh, end justifies the means um going on with will and it's important that he has these conversations out loud with someone who isn't charles yes now that's very true it, she it really reminded me of the vet in garfield though <laughs> <laughs> but of except of course that garfield never actually tried to set john yeah. up He'd never say... Uh, he was hampering the whole thing. I'm signing at this point, you two should go out on a date, but obviously that doesn't work in audio. I have never wanted to learn ASL, that's American Sign Language, folks, as much as after watching this. I kind of, like, you know, I've memorized a couple of signs that Caesar does. You know, I've got home in there, and that's that's key. 
and uh, yeah, just I've always kind of wanted to learn sign language just so that I could sign things at you across the room at parties and just go, this place sucks, let's bail. But unfortunately, because it requires also very overt expressions on your face as well, it would almost be bloody obvious what I'm saying. No, because most people don't think to look at facial expression and hand gestures as whether they actually mean anything. Um, although I would say that if you are going to learn any sign language, BSL would probably make more sense. Um, and then you would be able to communicate with people in this country who use it. They'll understand my accent. <laughs> they probably have to put up with American deaf tourists by, <laughs> ruining their restaurant experiences with their loud signing. Um, the freedom in the Redwoods moment is absolutely incredible. Something hadn't occurred to me. Uh, I knew that the tree was significant, uh, that the big tree that Caesar stands in front of just in awe. Um, but Rupert Wyatt, director, um, it's his throne. When he is atop that, he is king. That is the symbol of his freedom. That is what the one he gravitates to. And that's the one he is atop at the very, very end when he's king. But this time he has his apes behind him. Absolutely. This is sort of, he's the king of all he surveys. Yeah. Oh, God. I want to stop. Just go watch it it now. (laughs) And I'm hoping that the folks, when they listen to this bit of music, will want to do the same. Five years later and the uncertainty sets in and the uh, the age-old question, which is the root of most stories, who am I, uh, comes into play with Caesar. And uh, okay, this is the most like Andy, obviously, because it's in terms of his frame, in terms of like his expressions. He's a bit rougher at this stage now. There's all that, that, that cutesiness of childhood is gone. He's still, he's still soft, but there's more of a... Uh, maturity about him obviously at this point well he's i mean it doesn't hurt that he is even if he'd seen other chimps to compare himself to which of course he hasn't Mm. um he's he's bigger than most chimps are he he's had uh better nutrition he's had consistent medical care um he's had the benefit of he's he's like a first world chimp and 
also there's yes, the he's fact had the education that, at radar well that too um but um there's also the fact that he he stand he doesn't stand the way chimps in that you see in the zoo and and in um in the jungles do they usually have their knees bent he stands upright and it's i'm guessing that that's because he's been emulating will his whole life he's not been trying to be like other chimps because that's not where his role model comes from his role model comes from his father that's why he's uh, staring in the mirror at himself at this stage and, and, uh, and trying to work out who he is. Because as far as he's concerned, he's been a human child his entire life, but he just happens to be in an ape's body. But because he doesn't know what apes are, he's trying to work out what the difference is. And I think this is one of the reasons why um, uh, Lyra and I, I think many people, particularly younger people, would find a lot to connect with in this film because of Caesar's self-questioning, the way that he asks about himself and the way that he uh, distinguishes himself. I mean, the the birthmark that he has is actually quite a nice visual representation of this because that is is something that very specifically says this is how you... um, individualize yourself you have this mark no other chimp has this mark that's a way of of making it very very stark that he is an individual and his almost self-examining and self-questioning many humans never do that never have cause to do that if you've i mean i've I've said this before in in context of other discussions that we've had but if you fit in your whole life if everybody around you looks like you if everything that you've done has always fitted in with the group if you've never had any cause to examine who you are why you are that way what makes you tick and yet doesn't seem to click with any of the people around you if you never have cause to ask any of those questions there is a degree of self-awareness and self-progression that's never going to happen for you that people who are in a situation where they don't look like everybody else or they don't feel like everyone else or they have impulses that take them down a route that the people around them don't seem to want to go. I think that kind of that self-examination can expand your uh, perspective of the the world and particularly the world around you. And I think that's possibly why people end up feeling even more isolated when they're in that situation, because not only do they start off different to everybody else, they end up looking at the world in a very different way to how everyone around them does. Uh, Going back a little bit to uh, the uh, earlier stage with Bright Eyes, I forgot to mention, there had to be a very good reason why she left Caesar behind and she had to be seen to be trying to get back into the room without making it overt as to exactly what she was trying to do. So ultimately when it came down to the framing, uh, she was cornered and she panicked and she ran around the place. But the, but this works perfectly as a macrocosm for presenting the danger that Caesar will be in if he is dropped into civilized society. We can't cope with him. They can't cope he wouldn't be able to cope with us. And that's obviously then reprised uh, when he's in the neighbor's yard. There's, uh, there's a place for him and it's in a cage outside of that. And everyone hits the roof. Mm. Well, because they don't look at his behavior. 
they don't look at the fact that he's uh, he's wearing clothes, he's communicating, he's interacting in much the same way that a child would if, if that child had um, restrictions on their communication that meant that they had to use sign language rather than words. The people who respond to him in a hostile way don't take in any of that. They just go chimp animal. They go entirely on what their eyes tell them about who he is and, and what he deserves to be treated like. Mm. Hence, people far too often referring to uh, apes, including in this film, mistakenly as monkeys. Mm. As I mentioned in the first podcast, there's four members of the ape family, uh, chimpanzee, orangutan, gorilla and human. They really are that close. So when Charles is seemingly attacked by this asshole neighbor again and who's pointing an offending finger directly at his chest um, and Caesar decides to go in uh, into defense, by the way, he's uh, building a little Statue of Liberty at that point. Nice. This was a very, again, just as with the Bright Eyes moment, a very tough scene because they, if they pushed it too far, Bright Eyes, Caesar becomes a monster. Um, you know, this, this horrible attacker who scare all the kids and, um, they had to then show immediately that he was sorry and regretted it and wanted to take it back, but couldn't. And this sort of, you know, crumpling up and going back to Charles and, and, and effectively crying on his shoulder at that point, um, just almost as traumatized as the neighbor, uh, it, it immediately sinks in and there's not one person listening who hasn't completely overreacted at a point. Maybe we haven't bitten people's fingers off. But uh, apparently it didn't come all the way off. Apparently he bit the finger but didn't swallow. He didn't actually bite it off. Uh, this was a, an important um, part of uh, direction, according to uh, Rupert Wyatt. This is the first I heard of that. I always thought Caesar bit off and swallowed. They never really? show that the finger survived. Yeah, no, you do, because at the end he's got a finger. It's all bandaged up. But... I know he's, he's wearing like a metal finger. I thought it was like a like a thing to make your hand seem more complete. Ah, right. No, I... I... Yeah. Well, I have to admit, I always assumed that he bit it off and then they found it and put it on ice and stitched it back on again. <laughs> I'm picturing that bit in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Don't swallow. Don't swallow. <laughs> oh, it's gone. But I think the, uh, the the setup for that is important as well. I mean, you, you see that Caesar's actions are very impulsive and very aggressive, but that they come from a, a protective place. Yeah. Um, his instincts in that situation are actually sound. You can, you can say as a socialized adult human that he is misperceiving the threat to Charles, that this guy is basically just sounding off and he's not actually going to hurt Charles. Yeah. But Caesar saw this guy threaten him with a baseball bat when he was a kid. You know, he's got no reason not to believe that he wouldn't do that to Charles. Yeah. This uh, takes away from the first five Planet of the Apes films where they say over and over again that chimps are pacifists. And uh, you were saying it was reassuring for General Thade to be super violent in uh, Burton's Planet of the Apes. In this, you get a lot of chimp violence, a lot of chimp-on-chimp violence, a lot of a couple of chimp-on-human violence moments, mm. and quite a few human-on-chimp moments. Well, I think that there is a distinction between um, there's a type of chimp called a bonobo, mm. which is they're smaller and um, they're much less aggressive. They have an entirely different social um, uh, sort of the way they work out territory and how they interact as a group, whereas the larger chimps the actual name of which escapes me. I think it might just be giant 
chimp or, or something like that. Giant on, chimp. They are much more aggressive. I should probably look at them, actually, otherwise I'm going to sound really stupid. The common chimp and the bonobo. So the uh, the common chimps are much bigger and uh, can be a lot more aggressive, and that seemed to be the way they were going with the uh, Burton apes. Although, having said that, you've then got um, Ar- Ari, Ari, who is seems much more intellectual and much less aggressive. So maybe she was a bonobo. And she's making fuck eyes at uh, Mark Wahlberg the whole time. That would fit too. <laughs> they have a lot of sex. Thanks to uh, We Hate Movies for that expression. Um, having said that, you did mention that Caesar was not unattractive in chimp terms. I can understand what you mean by that. Not that I immediately want to join the furries, but there is uh, a poise and a presence that you can feel from circus through Caesar. Which is absolutely magnetic. What I meant was that he is, he is very attractive in the true sense of the word, in that he, you are drawn to him because of his, his charisma and his character and his, his personality and how that shines through in his eyes and his Mm. way of communicating. He has a self-possession about him, um, and a confidence about him, which if you put all of those things in a human being. Oh, and he's incredibly smart too. I just list of things I look for in an ideal partner and I'm ticking them off one by one. Uh, he's not very well dressed. <laughs> I, for a chimp, he's pretty well dressed. Particularly <laughs> been concerned about people being well dressed. <laughs> he is shown up by the folks in the PG tips adverts. Mm, there is that. Well, he has such a thick neck, you see, you have to kind of rip the top off the sweater, which makes it look a bit. And all those suits, legs too short, arms too long. Of course, yeah. Jeans all rolled up at the bottom, which is terribly out of fashion. When we meet Brian Cox, uh, again, uh, director Rupert Wyatt mentioned, he is summed up in terms of what kind of character he's going to be. He's drinking a cup of coffee when he greets everyone at the gate in a kind of, I'm not going to let this ruin my day kind of way. And uh, he's he's kind of defined his, what would be the word? I suppose he's Todd Hockney from uh, The Usual Suspects, without a doubt the single guy among us who didn't give a fuck about anyone. I think that just emphasises how much the outside world perceives Caesar as just another chimp. Yeah. And that this is just the way things are done. This is, you know, there's, there's animal rights folks are not knocking down these guys' door. They should be. Uh, but, uh, you know, you've got Draco Malfoy tending to them badly. But the moment when they actually leave Caesar and uh, his, you know, sudden mild joy at being given a playground uh, suddenly turns to absolute despair. And, and uh, again, the phenomenal performance that if they were going to give Circus the Oscar, it would have been this moment that they shot. Mm, you know, yeah. they, they play that like minute worth of, uh, of clip. Yeah. It would have been that. There's, there's so... And he's pressing his face up against the glass and just pleading. There's so much subtlety as well about the interaction that goes on in this particular scene. Um, you've had, whenever you've seen Will and Caesar communicating, there's always been a degree of sign language involved in it. Um, and there's a, a particular gesture that when they first go to the woods, um, Caesar holds his hand out and looks down 
and it's a way of asking permission. It's basically acknowledging that Will is in charge mm. and it's Caesar saying that he will not go until Will says it's okay. It's now that's, gesture. that's a chimp gesture. That's not a sign language, not a human sign language gesture. And Caroline shows him what the chimp response would be, which is to draw the fingers across Caesar's palm. Mm. And when Caesar does the same thing this time, Will does not speak to him in chimp. He makes no attempt to communicate with him in sign language or in any of the ways that have made their relationship special. He stands there with his arms folded and he says, yeah, go, it's okay. And there's, it's almost a feel of um, that Will is kind of momentarily ashamed of the relationship that he has with Caesar. Mm-hmm. That he's... He is uncertain at this point. Is what he's done right? Would Caesar be better off with this clear distinction between I am the human, you are the animal, maybe we shouldn't have crossed that boundary? The thing that it's really hard not to uh, to address at this stage, the, the, sorry, the key point at this stage, Caesar is Will's son. Yeah. He's been raising him as his son. As far as Caesar's concerned, that's the case. This is his father. This is his whole world. And to be abandoned at this stage, to, to be left in a entirely foreign place and an entirely oppressive place, it's, um, well, it's, it, it propels him into a scenario that's obviously very neatly paralleled with how Taylor ends up in the original Planet of the Apes, that the, the whole jail cell scenario with the concrete floors, the, the filthy straw everywhere, the hose pipes, the, the tormenting captors who scream at them all the time, the, just the absolute, uh, the, 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 the roaring inmates. It's, you know, when, uh, <laughs> thankfully Tom Felton provides us with, with the, it's a madhouse <laughs> line just to punctuate that. Mm. But, uh, it's, it's almost like Caesar's been taken to another world, like he's lived in this pocket universe the whole time, and now he's being introduced to a different planet. Yeah, but there's a very important distinction between the two, and that is that, um, I mean, obviously you've got the fact that everybody around them sees this as effectively rehoming a pet, um, even Caroline, and I have to admit, this was something that, that made me a little bit angry with her at this point. She knows what Caesar's intelligence level is. She knows what his level of comprehension is. And yet she still goes along with the fact that he is being treated like an animal at this point. Yeah. And it's not the same thing. It's uh, Taylor was an adult being put into a, a very bizarre situation, but not one in which he ever really had cause to doubt himself. Yeah. Caesar is effectively a child being dumped in foster care or more accurately put just left in a young offenders unit without any explanation of why, without any real understanding of, of what's going to happen next that he did not go completely mind snap kill everybody yeah. is testament to the strength of character the, yeah exactly yeah but again that's what we uh, we get to see him taken down to the very bottom before he comes back up to the top mm. around this time charles goes into shutdown necessitating the revised ALZ 113. Uh, there's this wonderful moment before Caesar leaves. He starts to eat his uh, eggs with the fork the wrong way around and Caesar turns it the right way around. 
it's not just that it shows that Charles is, is getting suddenly getting worse out of nowhere at this point because he hasn't been on regular treatments. It was just a single one-off time, wasn't it? Um, I believe oh, no. so. I, no, that's no, no. right. It's, it's been constant, but the point is that his regularly. body starts uh, rejecting it. That's right. Um, yeah. But you also get to see that Caesar really cares about people other than Will as well. He started to, you know, he sees Charles, if nothing else, as his grandfather. Mm. And, this, and the look of worried. worry yeah. and, and, you know, this is, you know, it, it's an adult reaction. Even a child would have less of a complex series of emotions going through them at that stage. Mm. Yeah. Caesar is not oblivious to what's going on around him. Yeah. I think with this combined with what's happening to Charles as well, um, and it's it's alluded to a little bit later on when Caroline says something to Will about there are some things that you, you shouldn't try to control. Mm. There is an element to Will of feeling like things in his life are out of control. And again, you do see moments where he almost seems to be grasping a bit too hard to being able to do something about things when he um, blows up at the woman in the office. Mm. Oh, by the way, she that's play, played by Karen Conoval. She plays someone else in the film. She's I know she's one of the apes. I think, is she Maurice? She's Maurice. She's yeah. the uh, orangutan, circus yeah. ape. Um, but it, it does kind of show Will's need for control not always in a positive light, mm. although there are positive outcomes of it. He develops this wonder drug that, that to all intent and purposes does exactly what it's expected to do. Mm. Um, and there are elements of this need for control that create good things about his personality. When he takes it to extremes, it causes problems and it causes conflict. And I, and I think that holds true for a, a number of the characters and, and with Caesar and with um, some of the other apes as well. There are things about them and about their characters which are positive traits, but when they take them too far you see how that becomes uh, a negative and something that needs to be reined back. I think mm. in Caesar, it's his his protective instincts and how if he doesn't learn to control that, then it comes out of him in aggression and, and um, uh, impulsivity. Interesting, though, he, he learns that he um, becomes more self-possessed as uh, only a little bit of time goes on. The moments between um, when he attacked the neighbour and uh, when he grabs Tom Felton's friend and yanks him towards him. If he was a, a, a wild animal, he'd have torn his face off. Again, Rupert Wyatt said this, but he's totally poised. He did it just because uh, he was getting the uh, bottle opening knife thing from him. So the whole thing was a ruse anyway. But the the way that he's standing there with that completely steady stare, he's in control of himself at this stage. Mm, and, yeah, this, and this this is the making of him, this incarceration. Absolutely. And there's that wonderful moment where he stares Tom Felton down. Mm. And Felton moves away. We've got to give him his actual name. What's his name? Uh, Dodge? Dodge. Dodge Landon, yeah. While the ALZ-113 is being put into production, we meet Cobra, the shiftiest 
most evil-looking of apes, who, um... I love the fact that throughout this film he's set up as someone who might end up being a villain or a genuine antagonist, but then they leave it. They go, right, TBC. I'm fairly certain something's going to happen in Dawn, which we're going to see in a couple of days. Mm. <laughs> I... I do like the fact that um, with Cobra, there's some examples of where they show that some of the apes have a level of intelligence that you wouldn't necessarily expect, even before they've been treated. Hmm. Um, and so, for example, you've got Maurice, who, because he's been taught sign language in the circus, can communicate with uh, Caesar, can, as in can communicate with him in words, yeah. um, which means that they can get concepts across between them that are much more involved than the way Caesar has to communicate with all the other chimps, which is very much a, um, a body, body, language. body language and uh, dominance poses and uh, more it's more broad strokes. He's having to communicate with them as a group. Yeah. Um, you've got the fact that uh, even before Cobra has the, the new formula given to him, there's a really wicked intelligence in his eyes. Yeah. He um, he knows to, I think when Will first meets him, he hold, he's holding out his hand for a cookie, but yeah. as soon as he's got it, he holds out his hand for another one. So it's, it's not just a case of get He even does a little sort of, ah, come on. Yeah, exactly. Just, which is a reference to, uh, one of the, uh, the, the men in, uh, if you can call them men in, uh, Planet of the Apes did something along the same lines. But there's a, a midpoint in, uh, Escape from the Planet of the Apes where, um, Cornelius, takes two oranges and then waits expectantly for a third because there's three in the cell. And he, and he kind of, yes, one more, please. But he doesn't stick his hand out. He's just waiting and then takes it in a civilized manner. But, uh, yeah, Cobra has absolutely no problem with just, you know, breaking protocol and going, ah, ah you owe me a cookie. Still, another one. Indeed. Give. Um... But yeah, he's, uh, he's a clearly a willing recruit on this one. He's, I don't know if he knows they're gonna make me smarter, but he, he, he certainly has no interest in standing around in his cell the whole time. Again, an ape that's working things out all along the way. And he's, he's going on his own little journey. Indeed. And then you've got, by comparison to this, we've passed over him a little bit, but um, Rocket, the yeah. the leader of the group of chimps when Caesar first meets them in the, the sanctuary. One thing that that struck me about the way they behaved when Caesar came in, what we said about because of the way he was brought up and because of the, the people that he was brought up around, Caesar walks upright all the time um, and, and stands taller than the other chimps. Now, that's something that Rocket does as a movement rather than as a permanent part of his bearing mm. to display dominance and to say I'm bigger than you, I'm tougher than you and to the other chimps it almost seemed as though they would perceive that Caesar was doing this all the time, that he was kind of like I would imagine and this is purely through observation obviously because I am not a big six foot tall broad bloke but if you walk around being chunkier and more muscular than everybody else around you smaller, more insecure people might perceive that you were being very aggressive with your, you know, look at all the space that you're demanding to take up. And, um, you know, you, you're clearly trying to start something here. And you, it's like, 
uh, well, really, I was just standing. I, or no. if you are naturally quite confident in what you say, a lot of people might decide, well, this person needs to be taken down a peg and, and they need to understand that what they have to say isn't necessarily the be-all, end-all of all statements when you may be very much aware of that fact and don't necessarily need taken down a peg mm. and might actually be quite humble. <laughs> I love Caesar. And... um did you notice that – did you mention that uh, Cobra was a, a pseudonym for Stalin, by the way? Yes. And he certainly seems to take an instant dislike to Jacobs, like a vendetta. Like he knows he's the head guy, he learns his name, and he's basically decided, you are mine. And interestingly enough, Jacobs sees this as evidence of intelligence rather than perceiving it as a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> Again, he's not seeing Cobra as a fellow – being he's seeing him as an animal a, an object at this point to be tested on yeah not rather than a most genuinely frightening chimp who ever lived yeah and unfortunately paul franklin gets caught in the uh, narrative crossfire and ends up as patient zero and this sucks for him because he's such a nice guy really deep down he cares about the apes um he's will's conscience at the beginning Ultimately, I think that it just had to happen to, to somebody who was linked to the plot in a way that it wasn't just some guy on the side. Mm. Also, it had to be somebody who would try to cover it up yeah. and pretend that everything was okay. Because if he'd gone at the very beginning, I don't feel so great. I'd probably not better not get involved with, with work and, you know... But it's the narrative crossfire. He has it. to not say that. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Actually, in uh, uh, Caroline's defense, you were saying that she doesn't speak up about uh, Caesar's intelligence. This was very much a let's try not to get too deeply into trouble. And in fact, the less questions that are asked, the better we could possibly get him out of here in a few weeks' time if we can, you know, get the paperwork done. So uh, I can understand why she wouldn't dig her heels in at that stage. I think she might have done, because she's obviously worked in the, the Veterinary Institute, more deep research into the place that Caesar was going to. Possibly so. And I, I, I do um, – uh, she, she does get very indignant when she realizes that mistreatment has been going on. Yeah. Um, but I think it was it was more just the fact that uh, the concept of abandoning a child in that place. Yeah. And that effectively that was what she was allowing to happen. Yeah. Even if it had been, you know, marvelously lovely and, and Caesar would have been incredibly well treated and incredibly well looked after, it's still a cage and it's still separation from your parents. So when they come back and tell Caesar yet again that he's not going home, uh, his immediate reaction, again, that wonderful moment when he's still holding Will's hand and then starts to try and pull his arm away and he's got the kind of, you know, just this deep frustration. And then he, having beautifully re-rendered the window onto the wall of his cell in chalk, scrubs it out because that was his concept of home. That symbol ends up as being something he takes back uh, as it's um, in graffiti on one of the signs. I think it, it's, it's kind of like a, a symbol of the revolution in the end. The apes idea of the rest of the world outside is conceptualized in this single image. 
Yeah, it becomes a territory marker. But at that stage, when he's scrubbing it off the wall, as far as he's concerned, he has to start from scratch with what he's got. Mm. Yeah. Which means standing up to Rocket, who's this awful, cheap bully. And it's almost too easy what, what he eventually does with the befriending, um, well, the, 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 the breakout's masterful, but the, the befriending the biggest, toughest boy in the school and then trapping Rocket in front of everybody else. It's very well timed and it's very well constructed to make sure Rocket do- cannot do anything at that point. He has no choice but supplication. And it's an extremely gratifying moment because to little kids watching that, everyone's been bullied by someone that they want to then threaten with a gorilla. Yes. Although I think you have the setup to that, um, that moment that we mentioned where he stares Dodge down. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's very, very tense, even though there's obviously the cage door between them. Mm. And the fact that Caesar is comparatively shorter, um, and Dodge has this, in the most technical sense, he has the higher authority because he's human and he's in charge in this place. But the way Caesar looks at him basically says, you have no more power over me. And more importantly, you know you have no more power over me. And I think because of that moment, once he actually gets out and Rocket is let out, there's never any doubt how that scene's going to play. Yeah. There will he even be throws no him more his, challenge in Rocket. He even throws him his weapon of choice, the thing that Rocket had picked up this this uh, gasoline can and he was smacking it around in a kind of way that this is his noisemaker, this is the thing that he may even have battered a few chimps with it. And so he even throws it to him in a kind of, there you go, I've given you your weapon of choice, bring it. Mm. And again, the way he handles it is the best part of all because... He's magnanimous about it. He's gentle with it. He doesn't humiliate Rocket too much. He doesn't smack him around. He doesn't bully him. He just puts him in his place. And then there's a particular look that he gives Buck just before that, after he lets Buck out. And Buck does this wonderful thing where he touches the grass, which is obviously just plastic grass. And he's a little bit kind of, this is, something's wrong about this. It shows that there is more to this giant gorilla than just an enormous brute. It's almost like if he had a voice, it would be Kevin Michael Richardson. Mm. And um, when Buck kind of looks at him in gratitude, Caesar has this kind of, it's okay, man, look about it. I can't really express it in words, but he is, has got a very kind of uh, soft expression. He's not um, up on his high horse. It's very much a kind of things are as they should be. He becomes a leader that you want to follow or an individual that you want to be like. And so you can see absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, that um, that he's going to earn his place and that, again, things are going to be right with the world. And this is uh, wonderfully uh, epitomized by his little stick show to uh, Maurice with their little conversation about um, apes alone weak, apes together strong. That's, the, that's an ancient, uh, I think it's like a Chinese folktale, but it may have come from other various uh, uh, sources than that. Uh, the the idea of you know sticks all together won't break in the same way. Um, the fact that he's already developing a chimp culture that is kind of the match of man. You can kind of see the very beginnings of civilization happening right there. Mm. I think the most important thing about that whole setup is that 
Caesar is looking to bring freedom to the other apes. Yeah. It's not a case of that he wants to use them to get revenge. It's not a case of um, that he is trying to build up his own authority just for the sake of it. He doesn't want subjects. He doesn't want power. He wouldn't bring the uh, the ALZ 113 to them and advance all of their intelligence if that was what he wanted. He wants freedom and he wants uh, the people around him. For a start, the first thing that Caesar prizes, and I'm a, he's a chimp after my own heart, is education. He wants the other apes to be smart because, as Maurice points out, apes stupid. Um, he needs a smart society with him. Otherwise, they're all just going to be messing around and not knowing what the hell to do. So he needs to equalize them. But I think part of that, um, above and beyond the, the wanting to increase their intelligence and, and wanting them to be smart, is that that pure joy that he feels when he goes up the trees, yeah. he wants them to know what that is. And he wants them to seek it, and you can't seek it unless you have the comprehension of it. Yeah. And obviously you don't necessarily need the uh, the 112 just to be able to conceptualize. Maurice manages without it. Mm, yeah. Well, again, a, a lot of them, and it, it, it may well be that, again, this comes back to the idea of what their lifestyles have been. Those other chimps all seem to have been like jungle-nabbed chimps that haven't been mm. exposed to much in terms of human culture. Maurice in the circus has been. He's been taught to talk, effectively. Um, nice and, little reference to Escape from the Planet of the Apes there. Yeah. Uh, learning to talk. Well, um, Maurice is the name of the actor who played Dr. Zayas in the original Planet yeah. of the Apes. Um, but the Also, when Charles named Caesar, it's much the same as uh, uh, Ricardo Monteblan in... Um, uh, conquest of the planet of the apes, uh, naming uh, Milo, renaming Milo Caesar because it's just so much of a, uh, a symbolic name. Mm. Um, but the the ability to communicate in words makes the brain work differently. It creates a, a set of neurons that, without the ability to conceptualise these symbols, which is effectively what words are, that mean objects and and colours and numbers and names and being again being able to individualise people and and members of your group by giving them a name rather than just having the idea of them being part of the group. That makes certain elements of the brain work in completely different ways. So Maurice would have that, at least to a small degree, which the other apes wouldn't necessarily have. Yeah. So the point where um, Caesar decides he's not coming home is the point when he's decided that these previously aggressive chimps who have... Um, he, he's just... He's finally managed to get his head around where he is and who he is and it's the point where he sees that Will's holding a leash, that what he has considered home, he would simply still be a pet. And he decides no more being a pet. And that's kind of an adult rite of passage as well. The, 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 again, the point being that Caesar's uh, Will's son, to be able to make your own family to be able to strike out on your own and away from from your your place of safety and security. That's this is as much a coming of age film as a John Hughes movie. 
That's interesting because I saw that scene as the same outcome in the sense that this is the boy becoming the man, mm-hmm. but from a completely different reason that Will is no longer completely trustworthy in Caesar's eyes yeah. and that it is incredibly hard for him to decline to go with him yeah. because he he still loves him and I think the way I read it, there's a part of him that really, really wants to go, that wants to be able to just say, yes, please, daddy, take me home. Let's get away from here. But he doesn't. He restrains that and he maintains a very um, rigid expression and he holds that emotion inside and keeps it very concealed and very controlled and that i think is is a way of behaving that is not only very human by comparison to uh, to a chimp's what we consider normal behavior for a chimp but it's very adult human yeah. children don't do that children don't conceal their emotions they wear everything out on their sleeves all the time it's when they start to grow up and that it's the socializing that that curbs that instinct in them um, and encourages them to keep those emotions under wraps because they get in the way of trying to achieve this or they um you know they they make people bizarrely this is a really weird way of perceiving it to my mind but if somebody's emotions are all out for some reason, people seem to think that makes them less trustworthy, which is a bit backwards in my mind. Surely if you can see every impulse and uh, motivation that a person has, they would be more trustworthy because they're not hiding anything from you. But no. Well, that's apparently. the thing. The assumption is that everyone's hiding something. So mm. if they're not hiding what they would normally hide, they must be hiding, must be hiding something, something even else. worse. They're probably a werewolf. <laughs> Good Lord. But anyway, so yeah, that that whole sort of emotion controlling thing, that's how I read adult. And then when you see him back in the enclosure... He's in the Rodan's thinker pose. Yeah. This is around about the time he gets rid of his pants as well. Because yes. uh, Rocket tore off his shirt. Again, the the, the, uh, the clothes are the uh, signs of his humanity. And, uh, you know, part of it's stripped away by Rocket when he's like, no, no, you got to leave that behind here. Yeah. You're the smarty art ape, aren't you? But Caesar himself takes off his pants because he's not, no, this is, uh, this is who I am. I don't necessarily need these anymore. No one else has pants around here. I'm going to be an ape. Clothes make the man, but apparently they do not make the chimp. Would appear so. Um, and and the way he gets Rocket in the end, uh, that he could at this point... I mean, Rocket's beaten. He could just be uh, thrown in, in with the herd. But he's got a cookie for him. He takes his sworn enemy, who he's already laid low, uh, and shows him mercy. But then, rather than just distributing those cookies himself... He gets his enemy to do it for him, showing absolute power over the chimps without lording it over them. 
He just stands there, lets Rocket get all the adulation for giving out the uh, cookies. And Ro- because Rocket's, Rocket's never been able to be generous with anything before. It's a new feeling for him. He actually kind of likes it. If you look at Rocket, most of the people are obviously looking at Caesar during this scene. But Rocket's sort of waving his arms in the air and he's like, oh, this is pretty good. But if you listen carefully to this music, Patrick Doyle, the uh, composer, had a choir very quietly singing along with it. I got a cookie for you. 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 It's got a rhythm to it, and it goes back and forth and back and forth, and it's almost imperceptible, but it's there. That's a wonderful moment where where Caesar basically just he gets everyone literally by the jaffers. By the end of it, he's pretty much a king anyway. But this is the the time after this is when uh, Brian Cox looks out at them through the window and the apes are all standing up and then they all disperse and Caesar sort of glares at him. The first time they stand, I always thought was at the end, but no, it's, it's here. They know how to now. They're imitating him and he was imitating Will. It's at that stage that they're basically going to follow Caesar unto death and then he makes them smart. And then they understand what they've got to do for him and with him and with each other. Question. Yeah. When you said he has them literally by the Jaffas, did you mean by the Jaffa cakes? Yes. Because (laughs) one thing I did notice is none of them seem to have any Jaffas in the figurative sense. Well, yeah, because when, when when you're animating apes for a family audience, you can't show a chimp's cock and balls. No. I, d- you I can't show their mangled asses. I, I do it understand make every, that. Like all of your your carefully put together dramatic scenes, suddenly someone in the crowd goes "ew" and everyone titters because yes. you know exactly what they're going ew at. Indeed. Yeah. Lyra did it when we were watching the ape documentary. Yeah. She was like, "Ew, I can see his bottom," and I'm like, "Well, yes, that's because he's a chimp. He's not wearing any pants." <laughs> Somebody get some pants on that chimp. Mm. So I had to make her understand that animals' bottoms and genitalia being out on display was simply because they had no reason to really cover them up. And at this point, Caesar, this is one of the only parts of the film. There are various bits of the film where you're like, wait a second, but you kind of have to let it slide. The, the bit where uh, uh, Caroline takes ages to ask a straightforward question she should have asked on night number three uh, is one. The fact that um, nobody noticed that... Um, Bright Eyes was obviously heavily pregnant, uh, is uh, another. Um, Franklin does actually say they carry small. However, you would think she would have been subject to certain examinations before they started doing this to her. Yeah, uh, you know, when they're damaging her brain. Uh, but again, it's, it, you kind of gotta let that shit slide to make the movie happen. And again, they're quite slick with it, so you don't really end up asking those questions. Some people do, the, one person got that far and went, right, I'm done with this film. And they missed a great film. But Caesar ninjas home through streets he doesn't know and back without incident. 
and manages to pick up the ALZ-113 and work out that it, what it is and that it's aerosol and makes all the other apes smart with it without incident and everything goes like clockwork. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> you, you could piece together an explanation for this. There would be elements where you would have to be reaching. Well, uh, you could devote 20 minutes of film time to Caesar's commando mission and various scrapes he gets into and him having to imitate a, a short, hairy woman wearing clothes stolen off a washing line. But you'd just be wasting people's time. Indeed. But, I mean, Will does drive him to the sanctuary. We know that apes have near-photographic memories. He also drives him to Genesis um, where, when he tells him about his mother. So theoretically, he would know how to get there. You could also make the connection that he would have seen Charles's previous medicine, um, which had ALZ on it, and knew that that was what um, had been given to his mother and had made him smart. Um, so the pieces are kind of all there. There are some leaps in logic, though. If you th- reckon on him as a really smart 16-year-old kid who's super athletic, then, yeah, there you go, basically. Yeah, but then he's Andrew Garfield. You just won over half the audience and lost the other half. Good point. <laughs> I will leave it up to you whether you want to snip that bit out. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> Here's a snippet for you, folks. The uh, ape that gets taken away, the female ape, is named Cornelia after Cornelius. It's around about this time, or maybe slightly before, that uh, Charles accepts his fate in another just incredibly well handled emotional scene and it's it's all done in looks and gestures and just the the manifest acting out of surrender on screen and it's, it's just extremely well handled and um again bravo to everyone involved the um the giving up after years and years of fighting and the uh, the it appears that the one thing he really doesn't want is to get it back again, knowing he's going to lose it again. It's just, it's too hard to keep going. And I can understand that. I've got a note here as Jacob's borders on half dimensional. What did he do at this point to warrant this? What did he say to Will at that stage? Was it the point where he said, you know, everything about the human brain except how it works? Very possibly. It's it's the bit where he's telling him to give up, and I can't remember exactly what was said. See, it was so it's so fleeting, lacking in dimension that it didn't even stay in my head. Oh, yeah. Jacobs probably suffers the most in terms of character because he's. I mean, there are definitely people who exist like him, and they're definitely in, there are definitely people in charge of big business who are just like him. But he's so cartoonish that um, there isn't really time to 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 make him more than this. I was watching um, uh, Escape earlier today and the guy who goes after Zira and Cornelius is is almost Nazi-like in his uh, uh, methods and um, mentality. But there's a point and I, this is obviously the second time I've seen it now. The first time I didn't realise what the magnitude of what he was going to do when he's talking about, you know, uh, what, when's it going to be... Uh, when are we going to nip in the bud the um, issues with the environment, the population explosion, which have obviously gotten a fuck ton worse in the past 40 years? You know, he's talking about getting this, the ape situation nipped in the bud back in, you know, before it becomes that men are subjugated to apes 
somebody has to start caring. And he says it with such conviction that I realized he really does think he's doing the right thing. He, I mean, he's ruled by his fear, but he's not cartoonish with it. It's possible they could have made Jacobs a little more dimensional, but again, it would have required extra time to the film, which maybe it wouldn't have been quite so svelte with it. I think it's the lack of motivations that, that you never see why Jacobs is the way he is. You never see anything that hints that he is anything other than the way he is. He he has one way forward and the only variation on that is at the end when he's baring his teeth begging for his life. Um <laughs> I mean, fair play to them. They made him black rather than white. It would have made him e- easy to just have this guy be Ronnie Cox. But, uh, but no, they, they, they made him, that adds a slight dimension to it because I suppose you could sort of write in a backstory uh, that, uh, I don't know, maybe he actually did have a really, uh, good upbringing or a bad upbringing. And that sort of informs on his character one way or the other. But you kind of have to just infer it yourself because if you start, if they start devoting time to it, fleshing out Jacobs, there's a bunch of other humans in this film which also need it. So mm. but they, yeah, fo- I mean, they did the right thing focusing on the apes. To a degree, yes, it does mean that he's not just the default shifty white capitalist, but he's, he's not far off. Yeah. He's just the shifty black capitalist. It's the 21st century, folks. It's happening now. Also, the fact that he's Johnson from Peep Show. Are we going to? He's not the same actor as Johnson from Peep Show. No, but the character. Pretty much, yes. Yes. Less, less comedic, obviously. Yeah. It's definitely not the same guy. Trust me. <laughs> but Idris Elba could have done it better. Oh, yes. <laughs> that goes for everything. But he'd have been like a genuine threat to the apes rather than just an antagonist. Mm-hmm. Stop trying to put Idris Elba into everything, both of us. Right. <clears throat> He's only got so many hours he can devote to acting in a year. True. Okay. So there's a a mention here that Icarus just entered Mars' atmosphere. I don't know if they're going to come back to this at some point. But when they started making this film, it was supposed to be, look, the way the original uh, Planet of the Apes quintet went, it was a closed loop. The idea being that they hadn't originally intended this, but it starts in the future and then it goes a little further than that and completely wipes out the human race. And then, and everything on Earth, and then goes all the way back to the 70s, and then moves forward from there, and, and then sort of joins in the middle of the, uh, with you know sloppy way with battle for the planet of the apes, where they couldn't even really be sure of the year. That's how badly they they executed it in the end. The the description of how long it was going to take apes to really get to the point of taking over the planet it happened way too quickly. Um, but in this film was kind of supposed to be an alternate prequel to Planet of the Apes. Maybe with just the idea being that conceptually an astronaut could turn up into a, onto a planet inhabited by apes 2,000 years in the future, and here's how it would happen. Maybe it would turn out completely differently. Well, basically, it would have to turn out completely differently to the way it happened in uh, the, uh, the 68 version, because Heston's character is so much of the time that... It's almost impossible to imagine an astronaut being exactly like that these days. But either way, their version of Icarus, now that we've skewed into a completely different universe, is on the way, and so something could eventually happen with that. I'd be very interested to see them reinterpret the original Planet of the Apes with intelligence in a way that that it completely eclipses the um, Burton version and just leaves it in the sort of oddity, sort of the circus tent that it ended up in. 
Oh, and uh, Rodney, the other, the, the more compassionate primate attendant, is watching Charlton Heston on TV at this stage. So they they reference the Icarus, and then they show you Heston just to tie those two together. Now, obviously, this being a post posthumous, they couldn't give him a straightforward uh, cameo. But now, thanks to getting Bill Bixby into the Incredible Hulk, that's how they get you in there. Now they they go back to your movies, which is a lovely little respectful nod. And then since you're already thinking about Heston uh, in Apes, they kind of set you up with the Caesar versus Dodge moment and um, get your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape, followed by no. Now, this no point is so huge that when I was watching Escape earlier with Lyra, um, they were talking about a, an ape named Aldo who stood up and said no. And before they'd even said the word, I said, what do you think the word was, Lyra? And she said, no. And she was right. And I said, yeah, but that was that ape was originally called Aldo, not Caesar. And I think they fluffed it or something. Um, either they create an alternate timeline by going back in time in which Caesar is the first ape to stand up and say no. Uh, or in a different timeline, Aldo won the battle for the planet of the apes and history is written by the victors. So he wrote himself into history and had it be that he, Aldo was the first one to stand up and say, no, again, pl- battle was so poorly sloppily executed. It didn't really seem like they were thinking that hard about it, but that would have made sense. But in this case, it's Caesar and the, point where he says no is a wonderful sort of like shivers down your spine like jumping into the uncanny valley i don't even think that the audience was expecting it at this point because there's no actual indication that he's like he's not practicing speaking at any point in in between times so when he does say it the audience is in the same cage as buck the gorilla who's facial expression again is is bewildered and and, and soft and he he doesn't look like the terrifying gorilla anymore and he like yeah if someone as huge and brawny as buck can be leveled by this occurrence it's huge it's what caesar represents at that point yeah i think that that gets that reaction from him um one of the things that i noticed about book and like i said some of the apes display certain different types of intelligence before they even have their alz treatment and one of the things that book seems to be able to do is grasp the future and grasp consequences maybe not to any great degree certainly not to any human degree but he can see beyond the immediate moment and It's not Caesar he's afraid of in that moment. And he looks terrified. It's what Caesar represents to the status quo. And the fact that great change cannot help but come because of this. Because that is literally something that has never happened before. Shortly after this, Caesar gets his first kill and, uh, he, it's entirely unintentional. He didn't not, he didn't understand the correlation between electricity and the, uh, the taser and the hose that he's holding at that point. And obviously Dodge, I think everyone in the audience was, was hoping that Dodge would at least get electrocuted to the point of, uh, you know, pooping himself and near paralysis. But I don't think, I think it kind of ups the stakes at this stage that he dies. Um, we understand that uh, Caesar didn't mean it. We understand that Dodge was absolutely intent on taking some eight lives at that stage and that it was pretty much, uh, you know, a do or die scenario. But it takes Caesar aback and he has to uh, deal with that and, and reconcile with those the feelings of having actually killed 
pretty quickly because if he starts to break down over it, suddenly the apes have lost their leader and he needs to, he needs to be able to just be a, a, a leader at that point. And but it's, they need to be soldiers and he needs to be their general. But it's possibly that, um, and he recovers from that moment so quickly, but it obviously stays with him. And if you, if you notice, he will not let the other apes take lives if he yeah. can possibly avoid it. He intervenes several times <laughs> to stop the other apes from actually killing humans. Yeah. He ensures that while they start beating on Rodney, he, he picks him up and with compassion puts him in the cell to make sure that he's safe as safe as a person can be in a world just about to be beset by an absolutely lethal pandemic. Yeah, he represents the compassion side with Cobra representing the wrath. And I think there's going to be some kind of dichotomy there in uh, in Dawn, just to mm. guess. Take your stinking bar off me, you damn 38! This whole escape sequence. Ape escape. Ape escape, yes. <laughs> um, is set up so that you understand what their goal is. The, the actions of the apes, the uprising, while you wouldn't necessarily call it peaceful, they're not looking they don't want to take over San Francisco. This is not a, you know, we've been kept under the heel for this long. Now we're in charge and you will do as we say. They just want to get through San Francisco so they can get to the woods. What they want is freedom. It's kind of a shock and awe campaign. They blaze through. They could have done, they could have attempted this covertly, but I think they, they basically, they're trying to make a big show of it. And uh, they, they push through in a kind of, like, don't mess with us and then we'll be out. They could have got a handful of them out covertly. Yeah. Ultimately, there are a lot of apes. And there need to be a lot of apes for us to actually buy that this could be a, a decent-sized gene pool. Mm. And yeah. the, 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 uh, the ALZ-13 gas could actually have some sort of effect on a large population of apes rather than just a small inbred bunch of humpadido apes. As we've already mentioned before, the whole prospect of inbreeding, you need a fairly sized uh, selection. And they managed to, because they get them from the zoo and from Genesis, you get a nice sort of uh, a, a range of different primates with different backgrounds and different ways of just a, a nice mix so that they're not all going to end up exactly the same. Although every single ape, it would appear, has no regard for the properties of glass. The amount of apes that jump through windows. I mean, I know people jump through windows in action movies all the time. Yeah, we don't like it then either. We don't like it then either. But <laughs> the amount of apes that jump through glass. Uh, we've discussed it on this show before. In fact, I think Jerome or, or Neil um, had horrible stories for us regarding their run-ins literally with windows. Glass stays still. You go through it, bad things happen. <laughs> But, you know, they needed something quite explosive at that point. And as I said, these are the first really great action sequences in a Planet of the Apes film. Think about it. The 68 version, laughable. Second film, absolutely terrible. Third film, it's this hardly, like, it's not, it's small scale. Fourth film does have some sort of shootouts and things, but they're, they're, uh, they're very small and low budget. And the whole thing seems like it was filmed on an evening and a weekend at Milton Keynes. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, the, the fifth one's the worst because that one's supposed to be an epic battle and it's so patently not. Now that we've had a few weeks to recover from it, I, but we barely said anything about it. But it's basically just like 15 guys in, in, in bad gorilla masks bought from a ha- Halloween shop in, in a field and uh, with a school bus and some other people sort of uh, walking across that field, like doing it with recreationist outfits on with machine guns. Do it with the, the, the camera angles are so cheap and, and it's the opposite of exciting the whole way through. And that takes up a, gro- a, vo- a large amount of the film. It, it felt very similar to Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And they're sort of, they're going back and forth to this unnamed human city. And I think what, what bothered me some, the most about the film is how very vague they are about specifics the whole way along. It becomes increasingly apparent that there isn't really a set story there. And they pretty much started without a completed script and finished without a completed script. It's sloppy filmmaking, and it it closed out the series in that kind of... And again, I think I've already said this before, I'm fairly certain that that Dawn is going to be a super-duper remake of it. Just in terms of thematically, apes now in the forest. Apes now having to work out whether to uh, make peace with man or war. And what's going to happen between the two species from then on? A, a, a genuinely weakened man and a strengthened ape species. How can that, how can there be a balance there? That's fascinating stuff. And we're verging now on what you wanted to begin with, Sharon, which is to explore the ape civilization and what they do as apes. Oh, and they, they pick up spears when they're at the zoo. They use railings as them. And this is the third weapon that mankind ever manufactured for itself the first one obviously being bone clubs as seen in the documentary 2001 a space odyssey and the second being pointy sticks which obviously the 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 first time they ever picked up like a pointy rib bone and realized they could shiv their neighbor with it then they realized if they tied that shiv to a stick they could shiv someone who was quite far away and thus they wouldn't have to get too up close and personal they could also chuck it at other creatures so already these guys are advancing beyond us in much shorter length of time, but in a way that actually seems kind of believable. And that was the remit of the film. They had to make a planet taken over by apes seem believable. How could that happen? Well, here's how. And it's fascinating to consider that this film, in different hands, they could have demonized the apes. They could have made this about how mankind has to band together to take down these simian oppressors who are otherwise, you know, we're all going to die otherwise. But you're totally with the apes, which is, again, as I said at the beginning, something you don't expect going in. You know, on the, the front cover, the poster, has Caesar glowering way too close. All the other Planet of the Apes videos have, like, an ape glaring at you, and you're like, oh, they're going to oppress us. But by the end of this movie, I was kind of like, yeah, maybe mankind has lasted for a hell of a lot too long. Maybe maybe give the apes a chance. And the wonderful thing about that is if you take away the shitty ending of Beneath and just keep it going, apes will eventually turn into man anyway. And there's this wonderful cyclical feeling to this film, which if you took away that doomsday scenario, it, it just feels natural to this occurrence happening. It's it's like the natural version of man creates AI, AI destroys man. And then AI over time evolves to the point where it can 
become biological. And the idea being that over time, these evolved simians that have become men would make the same mistakes as we did, or something else might happen which would lead to another ape uprising. And that maybe this is actually kind of a natural state of cycles for the Earth. Again, we have gone on and on throughout the show about how important cycles are in, in sci-fi in particular. And um, this one absolutely qualifies. And it's like the series is finally on the right track. Anything to say about the bridge sequence? I don't think I've got much to say about it overall. Um, <laughs> do you know what Caesar didn't do? What? Rip up the entire bridge and take it to the woods. Well, indeed. That would have been a ridiculous waste of energy. Yes, it would. <laughs> um, they there's a continuation of the uh, the slightly more realistic the way that things play out in this film by comparison with your bog standard blockbuster um, this was something that I noticed when the police all come out to, to try and recapture the apes when they get the police with the machine guns they're actually quite restrained there's, there's well, they don't have machine guns to start with. They have rifles and the, their shooting is careful and they aim and they're, they're not just basically trying to mow down this oncoming wave of attacking simians until the helicopter turns up and that guy's got Jacob stood behind him anyway going, shoot them, shoot them, shoot them all. Shoot them, shoot them, boss. Indeed. <laughs> but yeah, this was a this was a, a big scenario to uh, to get into, and it, it kind of it warranted this sequence. Usually, action is is dull, but um, you actually the the fact that Caesar um, corrals his troops and uh, and coordinates the battle to play to their strengths. So chimpanzees up, orangutans down, and the gorilla in the middle, basically as a tank. Buck. And his sacrifice here to take out the helicopter is something that they're going to build a statue to him, according to uh, the, the Rupert Wyatt director again. Um, this is this was an incredibly significant event because um, without him doing that exact thing at that exact time, they would have been dead. They would not have been able to get to where they needed to go. Caesar would have been taken out. So it's this... Um, it, it, obviously, it's, it's hearkening to King Kong, especially when you've got Circus kneeling beside him as, as as he dies and just, you know, wondering. And again, the best thing about it is uh, that you don't have to go through the crappy America and, you know, at least I got to hold you one last time. The, the same exchange takes place, but they're apes. It doesn't have to be spoken. And that's, again, that's a kind of a remit for the whole film. It doesn't have to be like the way we always do with blockbusters. This, you know, th this continues to raise the bar for summer movies, they don't have to be like Transformers. They don't have to be like G.I. Joe. They don't have to be like, um, what's that other one? <laughs> the Day After Tomorrow or 2012 or just these. They don't have to be Leave Your Brain at the Door films. Why should that kind of film get the huge amounts of money. Why should the dramas get no money, except for the ones that the Oscars like? 
And again, audiences responded well. Audiences responded in the same way as with Inception, proving we can take this kind of thing. We can reward the filmmakers for, for taking these steps. Another one of the biggest films of that year, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Possibly the only one I liked more than this. And really it's been um, uh, fantasy adaptations and uh, comic book movies, both of which have been evolving all the time. Although technically you could say that uh, Lord of the Rings is still the pinnacle and the fantasy front, um, which necessitated the pushing up of this of these standards. Because suddenly these incredibly expensive movies, uh, there was a lot riding on them, and people were just turning up in droves. It didn't have to be just a high concept. Uh, what if a uh, volcano in L.A.? <laughs> that, that's the best you got? Well, there's lots of lava everywhere. Okay, yeah. Uh, there, was, there was another bit which they took out, which almost seems like test footage, where Cobra finds a, a police shotgun and starts, you know, racking it back and forth. And he's in the forest at this point. And he points it at the camera and fires. And it sort of you know, cuts away. That's, that's the end of the deleted scene. It almost seems like a joke in a kind of a reference to the fact that the apes eventually end up carrying guns because you get the wonderful bit where Caesar's on the horse here. They were going to bring in, like, they were trying to work out a way they could get the poachers to catch the apes on horseback, but it just didn't work for that part of the world. They don't, they don't run the apes on horses in the jungle. So they brought it in here, and then you got to see Caesar actually riding a horse. So it, there's, there's a, a wholeness to that. Um, also, you may, may notice that when Buck attacks the policeman mounted on horseback, yanks the policeman down... Let's the horse go. Horse just runs off. You're focusing on the uh, the gorilla at that point, but the horse does not come a cropper. In fact, no horses were harmed in the making of this film. Which makes sense because he's got no beef with the horse. Yeah. So so yeah, I'm glad they stopped short of Cobra with a shotgun. But we do get to see uh, Cobra's beef with Jacobs because shortly after Buck dies, Caesar gets to choose whether or not to save Jacobs, and he extends his hand and then he pulls it back. Not necessarily in a symbolic I can, I don't have to save you moment, but in I will not extend a hand to a human anymore. I will not trust you people anymore. And then he gives it to Koba. He doesn't decide to kill Jacobs at that point, but basically gives it to the person who has a personal issue with this man and just leaves him to it. And of course he does die, but it's not Caesar's direct making. So Caesar again manages to not be a monster. But when they're in the forest, he offers that hand to Will because he makes an exception because he understands that it's not a case of black and white. Caesar doesn't see the world in black and white. And that may be where he differs from Koba in his approach in the coming years. He can distinguish between individuals, which may be something that the other apes aren't willing or prepared to do. Or just not able to do yet. That is something that takes practice. Yeah. Again, he's he's had that self-questioning. He's had that looking at himself in the mirror and that, you know, being fully aware that he is distinct and separate from everybody else. In a way, his uh, his exodus across the bridge is kind of a uh, reference to another Charlton Heston role. He's Ape Moses. Yeah. Freeing the slaves. Absolutely. Taking them to the promised land. But yeah, cheese aside, they handled the uh, the this this moment in, in 
again, incredibly well-measured fashion, because this is the point where Caesar gets to speak in a way that is, it's just the right, Caesar is home, just the right amount of words, just the right intonation, just the right framework for Will to understand, not so much the words he's saying, but that he said it, and all of that comes together in one moment, and the shock on Will's face, but the realisation and understanding, it's this incredible emotional punch. It's a father saying goodbye to his son, but it's but being happy for him as well. And if you look at Will's breathing immediately after that moment, it calms down. He slows. It, it's this realization that he's got to accept this situation for what it is, and he does have to let go of the things that are not that are not his to control. It's not a question of can't control them. It's a question of that the, they are Caesar is not his property any more than your than a child is your property. They will grow up and go on and do their own thing. And it's not your place to uh, continue to exert control and pressure on that. Everyone's been telling him this the whole film. Jacob's told him. Caroline told him. His father told him by saying, let me go. Mm. It takes Caesar telling him this is the way things should be. This The balance has been reached. And so Will reaches his characterization peak and he actually moves forwards and learns. And it's a damn shame that he is not coming back for Dawn. Because again, bravo to Frank. I never thought he could make me cry. And then the apes all rise as one. And that is the point where balance is reached. That is the point where uh, Caesar it becomes their king properly gets to gets to his throne gets to the tree gets to be lord of all he surveys with them behind him it would have been very short-lived were it not for the pandemic they would have been hunted down and destroyed without a doubt but the world has other things to deal with and yeah rather than uh, making the uh, apes out to be villains of the peace um and indeed sort of leading up to a sort of a, oh god things are going to be terrible kind of way it ends on this incredible up rising moment of, of, of elation and then the the pandemic being spread around the world is done in a way that's almost clinical it's got enough of a a god's eye view on the world and a, a technological god's eye view on the world to make it almost seem like a sort of a again a natural occurrence of, of nature going right that's enough of these guys now let these guys in and if it's not uh, biologically natural, it's socially natural that we would rise to the point of intelligence where someone comes up with something that they can't undo. Well, it's I think to a degree it's the same sort of approach that has given rise to all the zombie fiction that's bludgeoned the world of late, uh, that we are at a point where we are very acutely aware of the dangers of over-civilization. Mm. And we're looking for, in our fictional worlds, we are looking for that over-civilization to be grabbed by the collar and shaken up, basically. So join us next week for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. You have been listening to Digital Drift. I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And... Neural, Neural handshake, handshake complete. complete.